This is the Roaring Elephant podcast for the 19th of July 2016, a podcast about Apache Hadoop and the surrounding ecosystem for anybody working with or investigating big data. My name is Jon, and here's my co-host, Dave. Hi, Dave. Hello, Jon. How are you doing today? Today, I am doing exceptionally well. Exceptionally well, even. Still good weather there. Yeah, fabulous. I'm looking here over a mostly blue sky with a few white fluffy clouds in it. So, yeah, all good. Still doing some California dreaming. No, no, European dreaming in this case. (laughs) Well, what did you do the last two weeks except dreaming? Well, so due to the mysteries and wonder that is time travel, um, the last two weeks I have been on holiday. So that's been it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is going to be a very, very boring first part of the podcast then, because... No, because we have yet to discover the interesting and exciting things that you've been doing, Jan, and I'm relying, as always, you to carry me on this. Well, I'm going to top you, because I have been on vacation myself, but I have done some big data stuff, because uh, as you may recall from the last episode, I've been studying hard on the edx.org courses on Spark and machine learning, and... uh, actually been very happy with them the expectations have been mostly fulfilled the course is very good very interesting a lot of hard work still so i hope that a couple of other listeners actually enrolled as well so we may have some discussion about that some feedback about that so if you want to talk about the courses there please send us an email no problem there and the fight between edx.org and my new steam controller well i'm afraid the steam controller lost I was hoping to play some games during the vacation, something I like to do from time to time, but uh, it hasn't happened. Are you aiming to become a a mentor on on these particular set of courses like you did last time when you did the last set, or does that that carry through onto this set as well? Uh, It doesn't carry through, and it's not something you can uh, go for. It's something you have to be chosen for. So last time when uh, they did uh, the course, I was indeed a mentor because I was very active on the uh, forums, and the main, main reason for that was simply I found the course very interesting and very energetic about it so i just spent a lot of time on the forums at that point and i have to become a mentor there uh community uh assistant i think they call it then uh-huh. which basically just means you get a little flag beside your name and means that if you answer a question you get a little bit more weight you carry a bit more weight because the yeah. instructors kind of endorsed my knowledge skill ability yeah. knowledge and let's face it who doesn't love a little flag yeah, it was fun. It was fun. It did also make me want to do more. So it does help in a bit of a, uh, uh, how, do you, how do you say it in English, uh, motivation. So it was yeah. good. But this time I'm still fairly new at my new job at Microsoft and a lot of time spent there doing a lot of stuff as well, which I can't always talk about. And I just haven't got the time to go into the forums as deeply as I want to do. So no, no assistant coaching this day. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Anything else being up? Nope. Part of vacation, that was it. So if you have nothing else to add. Nothing else here. Then we're going to move on to the next section where uh, Dave's going to tell us more about his experiences at the San Jose Hadoop Summit now three weeks ago, I guess. Uh, yes, yeah, something like that. Three, four three. weeks ago. And we're going to be focusing more on these uh, actual sessions that uh, Dave attended. So stay tuned. We'll be back after the music.
So, Dave, last time you talked about the keynote and the general impressions you had at the San Jose Summit. Now, today, we're going to go deeper into the sessions you attended. So, why don't you just uh, start with the first one you want to talk about? All right. So, the first one is uh, Semantic's end-to-end processing of 3.7 million events per second. Yes, that was the title of their session. <laughs> um, so... I mean, for those of you... They are creative, you have to admit. Yeah, not so much. Anyway, <laughs> um, so they, you know, for those of you that remember our previous uh, podcast on Hadoop Summit Dublin, or one of them, uh, we actually talked a little bit about the semantic um, session there, but that was more focused on their underlying infrastructure and how they were doing some interesting, exciting things with um, cloud-based deployments. This was more focused on, you know, a particular application solution, if you like, that that they were using, um, and it was uh, the session was a little bit hit and miss for me, and the reason I say that is that the first, probably the first third of the session was about kind of um, showing, you know, what they'd done, how they did it, how they built this infrastructure, you know, some of the different nuts and bolts, um, that they'd, you know, put together this, for those of you that aren't familiar, this is the, um, sort of cybersecurity side of Symantec. So they have many thousands of enterprise customers. They're receiving, um, data from over 400 million devices, um, they have um, Storm feeding uh, stuff into um, both Hive and Spark. Um, they're doing uh, a bunch of stuff with HBase and Elasticsearch. Um, and, you know, they gave some fairly interesting sort of stats on their environment. So, you know, over 660,000 yarn jobs have been run. Um, they have something like around 210 Storm nodes, about 80 Kafka nodes, uh, 135 nodes of HBase and just over 60 nodes of Elasticsearch. So, you know, that together it makes up their, their overall um, application environment. Um, and that side of it was really quite interesting. You know, they talked about the infrastructure and the architecture and how messages get routed around and, you know, why they did things that way and that sort of thing. Um, unfortunately, at least from my perspective, and actually I'd be interested in, in your perspective on this, Jan, the kind of second third of it was about the, the topic that they sort of talked about was tunable targets. And it was really just about for each individual component. So for, for like, for example, at Kafka, you've got the brokers, you've got the producers, and you've got the consumers. And what they actually did is they walked through step by step for each individual component these are the things that we tweaked. These are the settings that they tweaked. Uh, the The problem for those kind of sessions for me is that like the first bit is the really interesting bit. And the second bit, really, I could consume that as a document. You know, I don't really, they didn't go into enough detail, for me at least, on the problems that they had. Um, because I think the problems of these kind of large-scale deployments are actually some of the most interesting things. So, you know, how they solved it is is also useful uh, and interesting as an end result, but actually just hearing some of the, how they diagnosed those problems, how they got through that, um, was very, very light on their session. So I, it kind of, 
it could have been so much more. It was still really interesting. I would still thoroughly recommend you know going and checking it out, especially if you're using you know Storm, Kafka, HBase, Elasticsearch, Hive, any of those things at scale. Um, you know, you'll maybe pick up a few uh, hints and uh, hints and tips on some of that. What do you think, Jon? Do you prefer to see slides that just have lists of uh, you know set this setting to this value and you'll be good? Uh, it depends, as usual. Because <laughs> on the one hand, getting insight on in how these uh, components were set up and tuned and optimized is useful information. It's something that's not given often. A lot of times you have people saying, I've done this and this and this, and this is my great solution that does fantastic things. And if I want to duplicate their effort, the, the, the secret ingredient, the secret spice mix, that's pretty much those uh, uh, settings, those optimization settings, right? Yeah. Now, the, so from that point of view, I'd say, yeah, that sounds like an interesting uh, session. But if I understand correctly, they have a very singular purposed environment there for security analysis. And if I'm doing something else, and you're very quickly doing something else than just pure security analytics, then those settings may not be the settings that I need, the settings that I want to use. I would even say they probably aren't. I mean, an 80-node Kafka cluster, that's pretty big. I don't think I need that if I'm going to do some fraud detection, for example. Could be, could be. I think that that's, that is certainly something that plays into this, that they are operating at a scale which is probably above and beyond mm. Uh, the majority of our listeners are yeah. are at at the moment, or are, or even think they're likely to achieve in the short to medium yeah. term. Yeah, and in that point of view, I agree with you that if they would talk about in depth on how they got to those settings, if how how they found that the defaults were not optimal because this and this happened, and then we changed that, and then that didn't solve it, even though we thought that that kind of story would make it very much more interesting. If yeah. they didn't do that, and if I understand correctly, they didn't then that is definitely a bit of a letdown. Yeah, yeah, it, it was definitely a bit light on that kind of topic. Mm. And I couldn't agree more with you. I think the one of the things that I think is sorely lacking is you can read a lot of documentation, you know, sometimes, <laughs> if, if the documentation <laughs> exists. Um, but, and, you know, you can, if you are that way minded, sure, you can go ahead and trawl your way through code. But actually having an understanding from someone that's, you know, run something like this in production and actually how they went through the process of, mm-hmm. you know, debugging or diagnosing or tuning, I think that is really a, it's a very special skill. It's definitely, yep. in my opinion, something that we should, uh, we should see more about. Yeah, it's more about sharing experience instead of knowledge. Exactly. Knowledge, you, can, you said yourself, I could have read it on a, uh, on a document. Well, yeah, but that's a lot of knowledge that doesn't really help you that much actually developing or, or, or not repeating the mistakes somebody else have already made a thousand times. Yeah. Sharing the experience on how you go around these things, how you uh, get a feel for what's important, what's not important. If you have, it, if you look at these XML files or some of these Hadoop uh, projects, there's, hundreds of lines of xml with options and i i know about maybe 10 percent of them because i've used them touched them and seen what they did but there's definitely going to be some things that are missing 
and getting a methodology perhaps on how you should go through these, how you should classify these options, that would be very, very useful. Agreed, yeah. agreed. But I'd also, I felt a bit that in recent years, with Hadoop becoming more serious business, it's become harder and harder for people to admit their mistakes. In the earlier years, a lot of these sessions were basically about, we tried this and it failed. Yeah. And this is why. These day, the last few ep- years, not just talking about Hadoop Summit, but in general here, you don't hear those kind of stories anymore. You only hear the, the, the hero stories. So I think that is a really interesting point because I believe that you can actually learn more from your failures than you can from your successes. And the same is true from other people's failures and successes. If someone is just, you know, lucks into something that just works for them, then that's great and that's awesome for them and more power to them. They're obviously geniuses. But especially well, lucky. in this well, possibly. But especially in this um this environment, you're going to fail um almost undoubtedly at some point. And the idea is that you fail fast, you recover from that and you you learn from it and you move on. So sharing those failures should help other people kind of accelerate their progress. And if you don't share those failures, if you just show the end point of, you know, we set GC1 garbage collection to this with these values, great. Uh, that's fantastic. And that works for you when you're, you know, 80 or 100 or 5,000 node cluster. Um, that's great. But how you got to that piece by understanding that direction is going to be far more interesting and far more useful for the majority of people. And actually, now I think about it, um, it was very much the case across the board for pretty much every session I attended. There was something about it that you know didn't didn't ring quite so true, or it wasn't quite as on the mark as I was hoping. I think it is that. I think it's there was lots of explanation about you know we we built this, we did this, and this is how we got, and and this is what we did, or this is this is the end result there was far less focus on the journey. And I think that's a real shame. Yeah, but if I'm honest and looking to myself, I'm part of the problem because I find it a lot easier to talk about what I did right than to talk about what I did wrong. Yeah, I mean, part of that is human nature, right? Yeah, I mean, putting yourself, it's, you put yourself as a vulnerable person at that point. And, and I think you're totally right. It's a lot more interesting for the people around you, but it's very hard to talk about yourself or about your team or the people you work with in a, well, something that could be seen as a negative light. But, but that's, that's really, that's one of the core things, isn't it? You know, we see failure as being bad when actually the truth is failure is, uh, is not ju- it's mandatory. You know, you need to fail so that you can improve on it. Yeah. You need to failure is just part of that experience, and it, it shouldn't be seen as something negative in this context. Obviously, if you continue to fail consistently, then I don't <laughs> if you know, don't maybe, learn, yeah, maybe maybe choose another job. Uh, you know, <laughs> they're always looking for janitors. Um, ah, if you if you fail and you learn from that failure, and mm. you know that's what experience is yeah. by and large. Yeah, I still think it's getting harder all the time because of the whole professionalization of the big data environment. I say five years ago, everybody was a maverick, was a cowboy, just trying to figure things out, making things work. And hey, I got a lucky one here. Today, it's business. And in business, yeah, you have to be 
the go-getter, the positive, the the goal-getter, the, the whatever, the the success person. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. It's Could a be. shame. Could be. Could be. Well, I suppose I would wrap up uh, my conversation on that particular session by saying that the QA went on and on and on, which for from my perspective is the sign of a a good session you know people were really engaged they wanted to know more about more depth about you know different uh, areas and that sort of thing it was it was good it was a good session overall i think it could have been better but you know we've i think we've done that one now i hope they believe the q a and the uh, video in the course online sometimes uh, they cut I, those out yeah i believe so i believe so um i look for, actually that's a good point i look forward to these sessions coming online because there, there were um, more than just a handful of sessions that I just I just couldn't get to for one reason or another. So I'm looking forward to actually um, diving back into a couple of them when I get a chance. So that was um, that was Symantec. Um, the next session was um, big data governance issues and how Apache Atlas resolves it for the enterprise. Um, so this was a session by Andrew Arn. Um, he did a number of sessions at Hadoop Site Dublin, and I kind of deliberately didn't go to any of them. I deliberately chose, um, you know, other non-Horton work sessions. Um, but you know, in this particular time slot, uh, that was one of the ones that I thought would be the most interesting. So I did actually go to one of these live, despite the fact that actually I'd seen recordings of some of his other sessions. Um, it was, it was. Good session, uh, Andrew. For those who haven't met him, is uh, you know very good uh, presenter. Um, equally comfortable, I would say, on both the the technical side of things and the uh, the commercial business um, side of things, and why these things are required, not just about the the bits and bytes of it. Um, it was it was a good session overall on Atlas. Um, for anyone not familiar with Atlas, I think this was actually a really good session to introduce it. Um, the there were a couple of demos in there, including uh, tag based security policies, the new user interface, and that sort of thing. Um, but the really interesting piece was, um, and in fact, we've talked about Atlas previously on the podcast, saying, you know. Is it you know? Is it ready yet? Is it coming yet? Uh, is it is it perhaps moving a little bit slower than we'd hoped? Um, and uh, I think Atlas is is finally getting to that point of maturity where other organisations are starting to really seriously engage with it. And there was there was one particular slide that I thought was very very interesting, which was um, talking about the um, governance data governance certifications that have been done. So Ativio, uh, Waterline, and Data Guys are all now fully certified and actually natively integrate with the Atlas metadata store. Um, there were six other companies' solutions that were in in progress um, as having their solutions certified as well. So in you know actually working on it at the moment, and there were another three um, solutions that were in the pipeline to be done at some point later. So I think there was. There was something from SAP, there was something from IBM, and, and so on. Um, so for those of you that don't understand why why I'm focusing on this and why I think this is particularly interesting, um, the whole idea around Atlas is having this central 
data governance metadata store. And the idea being that if you have a bunch of different tools, so maybe you're ingesting data using NiFi, you're um, you know, you've got then got a pig script that does some some uh, data cleansing. Then you push it into a hive table and you you know mask it or do some selects on it. And then maybe you use a third party tool to to do some final transformation before exposing it to you know some visualization tool at the other end. If all of those tools aren't using the same data governance metadata store, then essentially you you have no data governance, or at least you don't have a complete data governance story. Um, so this data governance certification, the fact that there are quite a number of tools that are now actually up, running, and working and integrated, means that you can actually start to see a full picture of your data, a full governance flow of your data um, as it's integrated into these different tools as well. So regardless of whether someone's using you know, data guys for um, discovery or security, waterline for discovery, and a Tivio for ETL work, they're all plugged into the same underlying um, governance metadata store. So I thought that was really good. Um, the session itself was, was good as well, but I think that was, the, that was the key point for me on that one. Yeah, sounds good. I've I've listened to Andrew before, and I've worked with him before, so I know he's a good speaker. A uh, couple of things I was I've been making some notes while we were talking, because uh, as uh, listeners may remember, I wasn't present, so I'm, I'm learning about this firsthand myself here too. Are you talking about the governance certifications? You named a whole bunch of commercial entities that certify their product with uh, Atlas, yeah, uh, Data Guys, IBM, whatever. How about the actual components of the Hadoop environment? Because the only way this is going to work is if Spark, Storm, Hive, uh, Accumulo, whoever you want to talk about, also does the necessary REST calls to the Atlas metadata store to store their governance data. Any information about that part? At the moment, um, the current version of Atlas um, supports the uh, the Hive Bridge, the Scoop Bridge, the Falcon Bridge, and the Storm Bridge. Um, and the, the bridges, for those that don't know, are the, the components, the hooks, if you like, that trigger that metadata to be fed back into Atlas. So Hive, Scoop, Falcon, and Storm are in, in the current trunk. The kind of idea is that um, things like uh, NiFi uh, will also be in that come around about the end of year. Uh, and obviously, you can track how that's going uh, by following the uh, Atlas Incubator project on Apache.org. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's clearly it's clearly got to grow past just uh, core underlying component. It's got to grow into yeah. the rest of the ecosystem to to be truly relevant. Yeah. Now, that being said, I know that uh, it's a deep water or water water level. What's it Waterline. Called? Waterline. Thank you. Yeah. I know that they not only use but also augment. They actually are able to uh, query existing data sources and put stuff into the data source into the data set for Apache uh, Atlas. So it's not yeah. only that they're using it; actually, also adding to it. So that's good. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. And that's that's the that's the power of it. And the one thing I'm still skeptical about is the main usage for this is going to be forensics, right? Something went wrong, let's find out where it happened and who touched what and whatever. Now, in order to make these forensics mean anything, you have to make sure that the storing of the governance metadata was done properly. 
which means code scanning to make sure that there's no code part that bypasses the Atlas bridge or whatever. I haven't heard anything about any kind of official body uh, doing any auditing on the Atlas integration of these components. And considering that, I think banks and insurance and financial world are going to be the biggest users of this. Have you heard anything about on that on that side? Not specifically. I do know that there are several organizations that have done their own uh, code scans of you know, the overall Hadoop uh, distribution that they've been consuming previously. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not aware that of any organization that's gone on a particular mm-hmm. focus like this. You uh, can't do a, reason, a normal code scan because this is really looking at the parts that the code takes. And typical code scans, where you have the known vulnerabilities, but before you can be a known vulnerability, you have to find the vulnerability so it becomes known. Or it's about clear text passwords and stuff like that. But this basically means you have to go through each bit of code to see if there's an alternate part somewhere. It's pretty hard. Yeah, I mean, I have seen not uh, not in Hadoop, but I have seen um, code path scans used previously for mm-hmm. other uh, other reasons. So it's you know it is a it is a known tested yeah, sure. um, sort of technology, but I haven't personally seen someone doing it specifically for this. Yeah. I've- Actually, I think that the Atlas guys are going to have to do this themselves because um, you want people to certify their components with Atlas. You can't ask all of them to do the code scanning. Yeah, but it's actually going to be, I mean, the it's not going to be the components that Atlas deals with in the majority of cases. I mean, once you've scanned Atlas and made sure that that all operates as, as it yeah. should do, the problem is it's the third party applications True. or you know w- the majority of which you know everything that i talked about in terms of yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, you yeah. know certified third party tools they're all closed source so you have to trust that every single path uh, through their code uh, you know does actually trigger the the atlas hook and you know yeah it's valid for the open source as well right i mean if hive is using atlas hive well, yeah. has to make sure that they are not bypassing Absolutely. the atlas hook either Absolutely, and, yeah. Uh, and I mean, this certification thing, does that actually imply that that has happened or...? Yes. Yeah. Uh, sorry. Uh, the certification thing certifies that this tool can... This is a Hortonworks certification, write. right? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Could, certifies that it can read and write to and from the, the Atlas method. It's just, okay. it's just that there's a compatibility between the two... To two components, the bridge is being is available and usable, yeah. but there's no guarantee for any kind of legal forensics, whatever. No, and I, I mean, I don't actually think that um, the. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I'm not sure that the legal and forensic side of things is going to be the number one focus for it. I'm sure it will be as it becomes more trusted or more tested. But I think initially, it's just going to be a qu- a question of. Someone in maybe BI looking at a certain set of numbers and saying, "Are you sure these numbers are right? Where, where did these numbers? You know, how did these numbers get to me?" And someone just be able to trace the lineage of their data through. Okay, it came from these two data sets. You know, filtered with that, okay. manipulated with this. That's a little bit less critical than I think the use case that you were initially focused yeah. on. So you're more seeing it as an optimization step. How can I optimize my workflow? Are data sources I'm paying for actually adding value? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Well, it makes sense. Makes sense. It could be a first step, and then they can move on if they want to to the real yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 
One thing I still had in my mind, last time you talked a bit about the fragmentation of the ecosystem, of my, pers- uh, how do you say this in English? My perception? perception of fragmentation, thank you. Atlas is going to be one of those core components that has to be just like yarn, I guess, everywhere, independent of what kind of components you're using. So do you think that Atlas is going to become part of the ODPI at some point? Mm. Do you hear uh, any whispers in the hallways there? <laughs> I didn't, um, but uh, I don't know. I really don't know. I think it would be, I mean, data governance and, in fact, data security are two very key important points. You know, when we, um, the unreleased episode that uh, will be coming out soon after this one, I believe, um, we interviewed someone from the ODPI. Hi there, John. Um, and we we asked questions around, you know, the expansion of the scope of the ODPI. And, and I think it will be a, a natural growth. They're mm-hmm. building a, a solid foundation and it will be extending. Mm-hmm. And, you know, data governance makes uh, a lot of sense to be part of that story. But, you know, how quickly that will come, only time will tell. Yeah, a bit of maturization has to go on there. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So that was uh, that. Was that. Um, the next session uh, was IoT and streaming analytics and machine learning, uh, real-time intelligence with Apache NiFi. Um, so uh, this hang was on, hang on. You're going joint... to be, be uh, accused of being a NiFi fanboy here, right? Uh, that's fine. This was the session that I went to, so... <laughs> um, so this was actually uh, a joint session um, between uh, SAS and Hortonworks. Oh, um, so they were actually using or showing the SAS uh, event stream processing um, uh, processor integrating with NiFi, and they were doing some, you know, showing how this uh, how this, these technologies um, collaborate. Um, it was it was fairly good. It was fairly interesting. Um, Personally, they talked about a couple of different um, sort of use cases and a couple of different uh, environments, but there wasn't actually a customer there on the stage. And I think it, it was kind of a bit of a shame because I think they really could have uh, they could have done a lot more with this had there been uh, again you know a real customer on stage with those two presenters talking about their actual experiences and that sort of thing. So. It, it was a good session. It was an interesting session. If you're looking at understanding how SaaS event stream processing could integrate with NiFi, um, then I would actually um, thoroughly recommend um, you know, going to see that because I, you know, if you want to get a, a basic understanding of how this all plugs together, you know, good good session to to feed you into the into the right direction. But if you're um, if you already understand the the technologies and you're hoping to understand a little bit more, you know probably. But there are better sessions out there for you. Okay, so a bit of an introductory tech showcase, if you like. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Now, I'm not too familiar with the SaaS uh, applications myself. I mean, I know they exist. I know pretty much what they do, but I have no idea what the tech beneath there is. But if I understand correctly, they create events, pass them to NiFi, and then NiFi drops it somewhere else. So sort of so actually the the way that it works is the um the SAS event stream processor so the NiFi framework will uh, aggregate receive um the messages the flow files 
And the event stream processor actually allows you to forward directly into SAS, uh, SAS's sort of real-time analytics machine learning models. And so it's my actually... pointing towards SAS. Correct. Okay. And you can you can have that uh, feeding messages in. You can also have it receiving messages out of uh, yeah um, of that. So and yeah, is that then SAS uh, in in uh, together with Hadoop? I mean, SAS has a solution that can run uh, what you say uh, on the side, on top, and inside Hadoop. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so all of those things are options depending on how you're looking okay. to try and achieve it. Well, it's interesting to see a pretty big player actually embracing Nife as well. Yeah. We're not the only fanboys. Sorry, Chris. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, it was good to see that uh, um, that it was being it was being taken pretty seriously. Uh, good. But again, a bit of a missed chance if you if I understand correctly. A little bit. A little bit. Mm-hmm. The was the Hortonworks data flow mentioned at all? As a parallel to or something? Uh, as in the the product that NiFi is part of. Well, yeah, I mean the Hortonworks data flow thing. That's uh, Storm plus uh, NiFi plus something else, I guess. Capital. And uh, the SaaS inside Hadoop well, it doesn't use Storm, I guess, but it does something similar. Just a real time event processing uh, thing. So it's very it rings very similar to me. And since you're still at Hortonworks, and I'm not, I'm asking you <laughs> if you see yeah. any similarities there. Uh, so it was it was covered a little bit, and you know the really how you choose one of these tools over the other. If you've got a lot of embedded SaaS skills, a lot of embedded models already, and uh, you know you've already got all the licenses, and you you just want to you know use those uh, existing technologies, that existing knowledge, uh, but you just want to uh, fire up on a new platform, then. You know why would you not go the SaaS route? It just it just makes yep. a lot of sense. If you if you haven't already done that investment, uh, or maybe you are looking at getting a, a bunch of new people in uh, who maybe have our skills, then it would possibly make sense to to go down that route. If you've got people that already know, you know, Scala or Python, then it maybe it would make uh, more sense to to do some of that in uh, in Spark. So. Uh, you know, use the technologies that make the most sense for you as an organization. And those answers aren't always going to be the same for everybody. No, it's very dependent on business uh, realities. I mean, time to market. Do you have the time to train a couple of people to do it yourself? Do you just want to spend money on the product that's finished? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, just it sounded pretty similar. So it's good to have a comparison there, if possible. Indeed. Yeah, pretty much. Not sure if I have any other questions. Oh, maybe I don't think you'll be able to answer this, but uh, SaaS software typically is licensed per core or something. Is there anything licensed from SaaS to use NiFi? Does that make it more expensive, or is it just a listener and it just works? I honestly couldn't tell you. I That's... know that the the SaaS process, the SaaS um processor for NiFi is available from SAS. It's not mm-hmm. part of the, the standard uh, NiFi distribution. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, I yeah. couldn't couldn't answer. Yeah. Uh, something to look at, perhaps. Indeed. Okay, moving on. Okay, so moving on, um, there was a really, really pretty good session on, um, well, I, I say pretty good, but then again, <laughs> I also think it suffered from some of the same problems of, of other sessions we've talked about. So anyway, let's, let's run through it. Uh, so there was a session uh, on productionizing Spark on Yarn uh, for ETL at petabyte scale. 
Um, and this was by Netflix. Um, for those of you who have uh, uh, listened to previous uh, podcasts where we've talked about Hadoop summits, either Dublin um, or uh, San Jose, I, I particularly like some of the sessions that are run by organizations like Netflix, like Spotify, um, like, like Yahoo, because they, first of all, they're talking about using technologies that I'm interested in, in production, but also at scales above and beyond what you know the lot, a lot of people in Europe at least are starting off with. Um, this this one was was pretty good. Um, they talked about uh, you know how their how their overall pipeline um, was built. Um, they also talked about some of the um, some of the work they've done comparing um, you know some of the different technologies before they went down this path. I mean, just the scale of some things that they're, that they're doing. So 81 million subscribers, uh, thousands of devices, um, 125 million hours of, of video streamed every day, um, 700 billion events uh, every 24 hours. And, you know, their, their overall um, you know, data warehouse, data lake, is around about 40 petabytes. Um, they read about three petabytes a day and they write about 300 terabytes every day. So it's a fairly substantial um, environment. Again, you know, a, a lot of what they do is, uh, is very much in the cloud. Um, you know, they've got uh, you know, 3,000 nodes across two different clusters um, and uh, they, they've got... Um, you know a number of different things that they've done as they were uh, as they were building this out and as they were trying to solve multiple issues and it was kind of interesting that um they as they were going through this again it suffered a bit from some of the problems that we've talked about previously where they didn't necessarily really describe the journey but they just described you know the end point you know this was mm-hmm. uh, this was the particular situation we had this is how we fixed it this one was slightly different, though, because you know uh, Netflix is very much an engineering-driven organization. They're actually very active uh, on the community. So you know what they what they actually showed was the the jiras um, that they had raised uh, against the particular projects, and in some cases they'd also provided the fixes, and some of those fixes had been accepted already, uh, and were sort of up in up in the in the trunk. Um, distribution of the code, so it was it was pretty interesting to see some of this flow. It was also interesting that some of the Jira's they'd obviously patched their own um, their own local uh, copy of the code and hadn't quite got around to uh, getting all of that code up into public Jira's and publicly available. There were still a couple that they mentioned that I. I was checking them as they were going through the session, and there were a couple that just had, you know, the bug was raised and there was no other comments around it. So uh, hopefully uh, in the next couple of weeks, uh, Netflix will be providing the rest of that code for, for everybody else. But, you know, lots of, lots of interesting uh, things around the way they did benchmarking, um, showing how some of the differences between um, you know, using Pig versus using Spark for certain things, they previously uh, made very heavy use of Pig, and in fact, this was you know part of their their journey towards using Spark for a lot more. 
Um, you know, some of the things they mentioned, for example, Spark was around about two and a half times faster for certain jobs. Um, and they actually said a lot of that speed up didn't really come from the engine itself, but it came from the the fact that Pig has got this JVM launch overhead, uh, which, you know, taking that chunk of seconds just to start up the JVM, start up the container, get it all instantiated and ready, was actually a significant chunk of the overall execution time. Um, you know, using Pig on top of Tez, is, it, Pig itself is fairly fast, but it was that startup time that was uh, that was killing them. Um, and that was actually um, Spark on Scala. Um, they tried using uh, doing some comparisons between Scala and Python as well, um, and they found that uh, Python um, in Spark was only two times better uh, due to certain uh, user-defined functions that they had in place. So interesting stuff. Um, and you know, they went through a couple of different jobs, a couple of different um, things that they'd experienced and seen overall and through their overall kind of production workflow to understand where things were feeding and, and sort of how much of it was was interesting. Also talked a little bit about some of the applications that they have um, that are using Hadoop. So things like uh, the adaptive row ordering. So when you when you scroll onto Netflix and uh, it, it sort of shows the, the films that are available to you, it's actually uh, on the back end, it's Hadoop that's deciding uh, which films it should show you first. So yeah, it's it was it was an interesting session. I wish they'd spent a bit more time talking about um, you know some of their uh, diagnosis, how they've reached the the points and their conclusions, and how they got to around some of those issues. But overall, pretty good. If you're interested in uh, doing ETL uh, using Spark, I would say it's a thoroughly interesting session. Yeah, sounds good. But it was basically only ETL. They don't do any kind of machine learning there because I'm assuming that Netflix also does some uh, prediction uh, stuff on there. Yeah, they did. They, they did a lot. They did a lot. I mean, the, the main focus was how they could get um, Spark uh, operating at petabyte scales, which you know previously had been somewhat challenging, just Spark kind of essentially falling over. Um, but mm. it, it was... It, they did cover some of the areas where they're doing machine learning and that sort of thing as well. But it was the the, the focus was really Spark on Yarn, petabyte scale. It's doable. You can do it. You know, you need some some fairly sizable infrastructure. Yeah. Um, I think they they mentioned that they were using um, you know their standard instance size is D two four X large, which is you know <laughs> pretty beefy by anyone's yeah status. i was wondering with spark i mean it's an in-memory technology and you said that uh it was faster than pig because of not having the jvm overhead but it's also the fact that all your memories and all your data is in memory right that's also a big boost for speed if you don't have to read it from disk the moment you want to use it but my yeah my issue with it is how much money are they spending for that little bit of increased power if it's double the time, I'm pretty sure it's 10 times the price. Yeah. And do remember that Hadoop is coming from the commodity hardware, cheap environment, big data solution. People are moving further away from that concept, doing things like this, I think. I'm not saying it's bad. I mean, it's, yeah. it's very sexy what they're doing, and I really would have been <laughs> like to hear it and be present when they were doing it. But yeah, I really wonder if it's... If you're still saving enough money to make it worldwide, worthwhile. That being said, of course, you're talking about petabyte scale. I'm 
starting. I'm trying to find a commercial solution that would actually allow you to do it at all. Yeah. 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 So yeah. from that point of view, if nobody else can do it, then whatever you're paying for it is cheap, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Achieving the impossible is what uh, big data is all about. Now, the thing that also uh, triggers me here is the thing is called productionizing Spark on Yarn. Yeah. Now, the on Yarn bit. Now, Yarn is optional if you, if you want to do Spark. If you look at Correct. the Databricks things, they don't use Yarn at all. You can use Mesos as well. Since it's in the title there, there must have been some kind of perceived or real, I'll leave it up to you, uh, advantage of using Yarn. Did they go into that? Yeah. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. I mean, basically, they are doing other things on this cluster. This is not just, you know, dedicated Spark cluster. Oh, okay. They're doing other things, um, and Yarn is is key to that. So now, the, the Yarn advantage for the multi-tenancy on the cluster, it doesn't really accelerate your Spark. It's just that you allow you to use the cluster for more than just Spark. That's correct, yeah. Okay, and where I've heard, I've had this conversation with uh, customers before, where they see yarn as a kind of uh, barrier to entry, or something that makes it more complicated, or breaks, or makes it slower. And basically, what they're saying here is, uh, nope, that just runs fine. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's good news. Especially to know it's been tested at this kind of scale is always good, of course. Yeah, I mean, this this is one of the things that I, uh, you know, I, I find useful in in my role is. You, you you happen to talk to a wide range of organizations and, you know, a lot of them are, you know, if they're very early on in their journey, they're sort of, they're concerned, they, they want to be, they, first of all, they don't want to be the first one to have done this. And actually having reassuring, even if it's just, you know, story, an anecdote about, you know, XYZ organization mm-hmm. has been doing this on, you know, yep. X number of, tens, hundreds, thousands of nodes on X number of petabytes um, and is very happy with it and is, in fact is prepared to publicly talk about what they've been doing is is incredibly useful. So, I, I yep. yeah, even if, um, you know, the majority of organizations that I'm working with aren't at this sort of scale, it's still really useful to, to know and, and to actually have a decent amount of knowledge about what these kind of organizations are doing in your back pocket. Yeah, definitely. I mean, even though Hadoop has reached the teenage years, or so Arun says, it's still a whole thing about the credibility of the whole tech, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I had two more things I wrote down on my paper. Mm-hmm. I'm paying attention. Uh, did you say that Python was faster than Scala, but it went with Scala anyway? No, other way around. Ah, okay. Um, yeah, Scala. Scala. So, um, Scala was two and a half times faster than their than their initial uh, pig for this particular job, mm-hmm. um, and uh, Python was only two times faster. Oh, two times faster than pig, you mean? Correct. Ah, yes, that's what I've lost. Yeah. Um, I mean, and that's just one particular job. There was another job that was uh, three over three times faster um, in Scala, mm-hmm. and only one point six times faster in uh, Python on Spark. Yeah. So. You know, your mileage may vary, and uh, a lot of that is going to depend on the exact UDFs you're using, uh, the exact components that you're using, and, and how well advanced they are in Python or Scala. Um, uh, but I would, I would always say, you know, unless you have a, a particular desire to go ahead and learn a new language, mm-hmm. those kind of differences will eventually get swept up in the majority of cases, and you're gonna, you're gonna lose so much time if you spend that just learning a new language just to implement the same thing. I, I, I typically tend to recommend go with the language you know 
Uh, once you get comfortable in it, and if you want to go and look at explore other language options, mm. sure, knock yourself out. But in the okay. majority of cases, go and demonstrate some value to the organization first. Then, then you can ask about training courses. <laughs> okay, but then I challenge you. What if I don't know any language? Nor Python, nor Scala. Ha ha. Uh, if you don't know any language at all whatsoever... Well, no, um, no Python then... and Oscala, okay? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, I would probably say go with whichever language is closer to one that you know. Again, for me, the conversation is more often about you know the time for proof of value and minimizing yeah. that time. So I would say go with whichever language is closer to something that you already know. Mm. I would actually go less nuanced and go for Python all the way. I mean, Python is always, I think, in 99.9% of the cases, be slower than uh, Scala because it's Python. It's an interpreted language. Scala is a lot faster. It's compiled. But when you're developing something, the ease of using Python, changing things, rerunning your experiments, seeing what changed, it, it accelerates your stuff. And... If you have a clear idea of what you want to do and it's all fleshed out and in real programming paradigms, you had done your functional analysis and all the other analysis and it's all just needs to be typed out now, yet go do it in Scala because you're not going to gain or lose any time in the development cycle there. If you're still figuring out what you want to do in doing it in Scala, it takes more time. Again, with your uh, caveat, if you know Scala, you don't know Python, or vice versa, that always uh, preempts, of course. But if you don't know anything yet, Python is an easier language just to mess around with. Scala makes it harder. Fair enough. I will bow to your superior developer experience. (laughs) But again, if you go for Scala, you will reap the benefits of of this faster language, simple. It's the yin and yang, right? It's easier to develop in Python. It's faster to run in Scala. Well, take your pick. What we need is a uh, a Python to Scala converter. (laughs) (laughs) Develop it in Python and then productionize it in in Scala. Uh, It's called C Sharp. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. Oh, uh, I feel dirty now. Anyway. Oh, come on. I like C-sharp. <laughs> well, I, I'm glad you do. Anything else? That's, oh, yeah. enough. That's all I'm going to say about that. Okay. <laughs> so that was that session. No, no, no. Um, I got one more question. Okay. Go on then. And this is an, uh, an interesting one, I think, or maybe I misheard uh, it again. Wouldn't be the first time. But are you saying that the Netflix website is plugged directly into the Hadoops cluster? Because uh, basically, that's s- something that customers always have a problem with: exposing their Hadoop cluster to the internet without anything in between. I, no, I think it's 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 powered through a set of APIs. Put it that way. Yeah, true. But the APIs go directly to the Spark so, topology, yeah. whatever. Because the Spark thing is always a micro batching, not not a real time event thing. So if it was Storm, I would have said, yeah, I can see how they do that. But with Spark's micro batching. Uh, that would mean that when I go to the site, I have to wait for the next cycle to go through. No, those cycles can be very short. I think five milliseconds is the slowest. Uh, sorry, the, yeah, the slowest, uh, no, the, the fastest I can go. That's what I meant. But it strikes me as odd, and I would like to know more about that. Yeah, I mean, I would say go and go and take a look at the session. I think, yep. actually, from memory, I don't think it was directly hooked in. I think they did the, the modeling, the predictions. Oh, okay. And then it, it's they expose subsets of that data through some set of APIs yeah, through yeah, 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 yeah. something. 
um, Makes sense. to actually, uh, and that could well be age-based, but yeah. I, I don't actually recall the detail, I'm afraid. Well, it doesn't even have to be. I mean, typically for a recommendation engine, you lose the ALS uh, algorithm, and that would just be something you pre-fill every X amount of time with the historic uh, information you have. You put yeah. it into a database somewhere and just let it be read, and in these cases, a NoSQL database would be fine, and if that's age-based or Mongo or whatever, that doesn't really yeah. make any difference. Okay, makes more sense. Thanks. <laughs> no problem. All right. So, um, and again, lots of good Q and A on that one as well. Um, that was uh, that was pretty that was pretty good from that perspective. Yeah, I made a note of it. I think I'm going to watch that one. I would thoroughly recommend it. Yeah. Um, okay. So, final session that we're going to cover is uh, analyzing telecom fraud at Hadoop scale. Um, I had fairly high hopes for this session. Uh, I was a little bit disappointed in the end. Um, so overall, it was it was quite a reasonable session, but uh, it turns out that uh, so this was run by um, uh, Sanjay Vyas at uh, Diota, and Diota are essentially a, a telecom fraud um, application provider. They happen to have uh, a set of applications that. Um, you know, make data ingest and data movement easy for telcos, and also they natively plug into uh, underlying Hadoop layers. Um, this was another session that, uh, to my mind, was a bit too vendor specific. Um, you know, the first third of it should have been or could have been expanded to cover the whole session, and instead, kind of the first third of it was. Um, really sort of the the architecture, the interesting bits for my mind, the architecture, the infrastructure, how all this stuff works, how it uh, why it's important, um, how they're handling uh, CDR records and IPDR records. Um, but the the kind of last two thirds bit well first of all, it was quite a short ish uh, session um, and and secondly the the last two thirds of it were, you know, there was a video testimony from a customer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, not as good as having the customer there, um, and it it was just a little bit. It didn't quite go deep enough. It it sort of it bumped on the uh, on the threshold of of not quite being deep enough to be really deeply interesting, and again, it was just another bit of a shame. It, it, if that had gone. A little bit deeper into what they'd done, how they did it. Um, you know, it, it came across a little bit as a bit of a black box um, solution. Um, right. They don't use anything standard for uh, data ingest. It's all their own uh, custom proprietary stuff, mm-hmm. um, and it, it feeds into Hadoop environment. But then the recommendations and the the sort of the rule based um, sort of fraud side of the alerting. Was also, uh, you know, a, a custom proprietary environment as well. So, you know, uh, it was it was an interesting session. It, it was good to understand, um, you know, some of the overall, um, I guess, overall architecture side of things. But you know, a, a missed opportunity to either go deeper or possibly to actually have a more in depth session, you know, with a customer talking about. Um, how they, you know, the the real value they've got from this. The, to me, a video. Whenever a video fires up at a session mm-hmm. like this, uh, you know, I maybe not switch off, but I'm always kind of disappointed because yeah. these sessions, the the real value is 
having people there, being able to ask them questions and just sort of firing up a video testimonial of someone talking about how awesome this company was to work with. It's not really what I'm at Hadoop Summit for. But anyway, so that was it. That was my final session. Yeah, yeah. It's sadly, it sounds very much like a marketing ploy. A little bit. bit. A little and bit. I always wonder a bit when a co- commercial proprietary software package goes to Hadoop Summit, the people there want to know how it's working inside, and by definition, a commercial proprietary package isn't going to tell you their secret sauce. Yeah. So uh, I think uh, I think it can be uh, it, it can be done well, and I think it, it uh, but it can also be mm-hmm. done poorly. I mean, there was a uh, I didn't attend it, but I spoke to somebody who um, attended the session on uh, one of the metadata. I think it might have been Waterline. There was a, a session with, with that uh, that was jointly run with somebody. And that apparently was a really good session. Um, <laughs> you know, And Waterline is a, is a third-party yep. uh, piece of software, uh, proprietary, closed source. Um, but for me, as long as you describe um, the interactions between your closed-source software and you know the um the the rest of the ecosystem and as long as you can clearly delineate where these things happen and what value it brings i've got no problems with with that being part of it i don't need to see everything built from scratch in open source i i you know my world has been a lot wider than that for a long time yes i love open source yes i actually do think it's the best way to to go and develop code and you know i will continue to enjoy open source software whenever i can but it's not the only solution and there are many other third-party proprietary software solutions out there that are integrating into open source solutions. I think that shows a, a great deal of maturity that's starting to come from those um, those proprietary software companies. They can't just maintain their, their little islands. They have to play well with you know, things like the big data ecosystem. Mm-hmm. So I think that's fine, and showing these things working together is fine. But I think you can do it in a way that's more of a uh, you know, more of a marketing exercise, or you can do it somewhere that, that's very real, where you know you feel like this organization is contributing back to the community as well. So, for example, mm. um, you know, there was no there was no interaction with the community from this particular organization. Um, it just like they were just consuming it, didn't really feel like we're feeding anything back. Some of the other sessions. It felt like they were feeding back. You know, they were they were part of the open source community. Sure, their tool might have been proprietary, but they wanted to be and were indeed part of the community as part of the overall story. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, yeah, it makes perfect sense. And you're right. I mean, if you look at Netflix, we talked earlier, that's also a commercial entity, but indeed. they really interoperate with the open source, and that works very well. And it's very interesting sessions. But these kind of things. I still have a bit of a question if they really have a space at Hadoop Summit. I mean, at Strata, maybe, yeah, but that's a more broader thing or some other kind of fairs. But Hadoop Summit, for me, is really a tech demo where you can see the internals. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, so this is perhaps uh, an an interesting point. I mean, we've come to the end of the sessions that I wanted to talk about uh, here. But, I mean, overall... I do wonder if perhaps if some of the weaker sessions um, had been kind of culled out, 
could it have fitted into two days? Probably not two days, but uh, probably two and a half. <laughs> um, yeah, but apart from the days, I mean, uh, when we talked about the Dublin session, we had a bit of a rant about the amount of tracks. There were so many tracks simultaneously, it was impossible to find anything. By culling some weaker sessions, you don't have to cull a day. You can just remove a track, perhaps. That's true. That is true. I mean, there was there was a, a business track. Um, I did step in and out of a couple of the business uh, track sessions. Um, you know, some good, some uh, some maybe not so good. Um, there was one particular session. Um, I won't mention uh, who who is actually presenting it in detail, but uh, possibly from my description, uh, our listeners may well be able to identify it. But it was basically a um, an overall uh, where where is Hadoop architecture going? You know, what should you be what should you be looking at? And a couple of things really. Even though I said we were done discussing sessions, <laughs> here we go. Um, a couple of things really get get me about these first of all if you're presenting to you know even a business audience if you're presenting at a technical conference um especially one with the prestige maybe i'm not yeah, sure it's quite the word i'm thinking of but the the focus of something like hadoop summit um please please take an effort to make sure that your slides are readable um you know it, uh, Seriously, if your if your slides are lots and lots of small box shaped diagrams with large chunks of text on the slides as well, that's it's not really engaging for the audience. Even if the message that you're trying to bring across is maybe moderately interesting, I'm still not convinced of that in this particular session. But there was you know lots of small boxes of flowcharts on screens and and lots of large chunks of text, and it just you know, a little bit disappointing from an organization that I think should and could know better. So, mm. yeah, the, and there were a couple of those in the business track. And it was almost it was almost like some of them were a um, uh, last-minute edition. I don't know if that's quite fair, but it, it felt like it was almost like they were presenting what could have been a document given to somebody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, as as anyone that spent any time uh, presenting and and talking to large audiences, uh, doing something as a document versus presenting something are two very very different um, experiences. So, yeah, uh, I think that um, I think they could have cut some of the tracks or you know shuffled shuffled things about a bit. Um, but all in all, it was it was still a very enjoyable time. Um, I had a lot of fun, and for me, the big thing about these is always uh, catching up with people that I probably haven't seen for six to twelve months. Um, you know, not just within uh, the same company, but within other organisations as well as people move around and all that sort of thing. So that was that was always uh, uh, always good. Well, I for me, uh, I'm happy you came back. Thank you very much, Sam. <laughs> It's good to be back. So, any closing thoughts? Uh, Hadoop Summit, go to one. Uh, And if you can't go to one for whatever reason, travel restrictions, I know these things are not cheap to get to. Even if you're going to your local one, there's still going to be 
probably some reasonably significant cost involved. But if that's the case, like block out some time in your in your schedule, in your diary, you know, maybe um, you know, an hour every other day or something like that. Go to the uh, the Hadoop Summit website, hadoopsummit.org uh, slash San Jose. Um, at, go to the agenda page and just like work out which sessions you think look interesting. You can go to a session, you can click on it, you can get a write-up of uh, a bit more detail about what the session is about. Make sure you read this write-up because some of the titles may be a little bit misleading. I think a bit of marketing polish going on there. But usually the abstracts are fairly um, fairly up-to-date. Um, and you can also see a bit of detail about the presenters. If you think it's interesting, you know those sessions will be available on YouTube um, coming up in the next couple of weeks. So, you know, start queuing these things up, start working out which ones you might want to watch, get it in your calendar. It's really difficult. I know it is to try and find a chunk of time where you can sit down and watch these, but it's, this stuff is really important. This is gold to anybody really interested in uh, Hadoop, in big data generally. There's a lot of good information here. There's a lot of experts here talking about stuff that, you know, you may not personally see or implement for another maybe 12 to 18 months, but getting that knowledge up front, really important. So I would thoroughly recommend if you can't go to one, spend the time, dedicate the time to at least watch a couple of the sessions that are aligned to your interests. I couldn't agree more. If your bread is buttered by big data stuff, make time for this. Or have toast. (laughs) You British. And that is all I have. Okay, um, we'll quickly go into some music now, and when we go back, we have questions from the audience. And welcome back. In this last section of the podcast, we usually answer questions from uh, our audience, we receive from you, our listeners. But uh, looking at the clock on my recording equipment here, we are running very much over time, so we're going to skip it for this time. That's about all we have time for today. I hope you enjoyed this serving of bite-sized big data. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new shiny episode, so stay tuned for that. Until then, please go to www.roaringelephant.org where you can find out more information about the podcast, send us your questions, and please give us a five-star re- review on iTunes. It really helps new users to discover the podcast and to broaden our audience. If you don't think we discover the five stars, that's okay, but in that case, uh, we you owe it to us to send us a message via the contact form uh, on our website or drop us an email to podcast at roaringelephant.org with any thoughts, comments, criticisms, or other feedback. My name is Dave. And my name is Jon. And we look forward to talking to you in two weeks' time. Goodbye. Take care.